As usual, I will start the Dhamma talk with the Namotasa. Please join if you wish to do so. Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato So tonight I will continue with the talk that I started two days ago. And as you remember, it was the talk about realizing, abandoning, experiencing and developing, or in other words, the talk about the Four Noble Truths. And as I've pointed out, so in regard to these Four Noble Truths, we need to do something about them. So the first one needs to be realized or deeply understood. The second one needs to be abandoned, let go of, the third one needs to be experienced, personally and directly experienced. And the fourth truth needs to be developed or cultivated. So as these four truths are commonly, commonly known, like the first truth is the truth of Dukkha or suffering. And that's the one that needs to be deeply understood or realized. And what needs to be understood and realized? It's Nama and Rupa, all mental and physical phenomena. So to see that they are of the nature of Dukkha, like this Sankara Dukkha, to be oppressed by the constant arising and passing away. Then the second truth is the truth of the cause of suffering. That one needs to be abandoned. We need to let go of. And what is the cause? It's tanha, craving, or more generally, all forms of desire, wanting, greed, craving, attachment. Then the third truth is the truth of the cessation <coughs> of suffering. This one needs to be directly and personally experienced. What needs to be experienced? The cessation of suffering, or in other words, Nibbana. And the fourth truth is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. And this one needs to be developed or cultivated. And this path is 
the Noble Eightfold Path. So in the last talk we have covered the first two truths and so tonight I'm going to explain in more detail the third and the fourth truth. So in regard to the third noble truth, that's the truth that needs to be experienced by each and every person, him or herself, to experience the cessation of suffering, or as it is also called, Nibbana. And remember what I said in regard to experiencing Nibbana, or the cessation of suffering. So the Buddha never spoke of attaining something, or getting something. It's rather uh, that we need to let go of, to give up, or the Buddha also used the word relinquishment. And as I've also mentioned last, in my last talk, Nibbana meaning the absence of craving, or as the word is also used in Thailand in the meaning of to cool down, even in, a, in very mundane ways they use the word Nibbana, to let the rise Nibbana to let the rice cool down before <coughs> one can eat it. Because if one eats with one's hands, one cannot eat it when it's still very hot. So then, what is this experience called the cessation of suffering? It's quite difficult to talk about it, and it's much easier to say what it is not. And therefore, we have all these expressions, descriptions, which kind of say what it is not. So expressions like the unconditioned, something that is not conditioned, or the unborn, or the deathless or this passion, or disenchantment, or it's described as non-arising. However, there are also expressions that do say what it is, like in positive terms, but many of these expressions or words, they, yeah, they also have a mundane meaning. And so these expressions can only be understood as metaphors. Like Nibbana is said to be the island or the sublime peace or the profound or the refuge, or it's described as supreme security. 
or as the other shore. So with expressions like this, again, how should we understand an expression like Nibbana is a refuge or um, the profound or sublime peace? As we have seen, the cause of suffering is tanha or craving. If we can abandon craving, if it's not present, then it will not produce an effect or a result. So, when craving does not arise, then we will not have dukkha as its result. So if the cause is absent, then there will arise no effect. You all know, if you put a seed into the ground, then you will get a plant. Let's say um, you have a mango seed, you put it into the ground, fertile ground, water it, there's enough warmth, and so this mango seed will um, start to grow and become a mango tree. But if you do not put the mango seed into the ground, you will not get a mango tree. And so if craving is not there, if it's abandoned, then it will not produce dukkha or suffering. So, Nibbana, Nibbana is experienced with the cessation of this tanha, with the cessation of craving, wanting, desire or attachment. So when we talk of the cessation of craving or the destruction of craving, then this simply means that this craving will no longer arise. Craving or any other mental defilements will not actually be destroyed. It's not kind of a... Uh, a destruction as we normally understand it. It's not that we go need to go and somehow <laughs> destruct it. But we simply work towards that craving can no longer arise. So when we talk of the cessation of craving, this means that it will no longer arise in the future. Because when the source or its potentiality um, has been destroyed in a parenthesis, when this source has been abandoned, when the potentiality um, has made ineffective, 
then it can no longer arise. So it's difficult to say what exactly this experience of Nibbana is. At one time the Buddha talked about it and he explained it in a way that was not too mysterious or difficult to understand. He talked about it based on practice like the general direction uh, we want to go. So he said, the destruction of greed, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion, this is called the unconditioned. And as we have seen, the unconditioned is another way of saying Nibbana the cessation of suffering. So basically, when greed, craving, hatred, delusion have ceased, then that's the unconditioned. So this difficulty of speaking about Nibbana has caused wise elders, monks and commentators to give explanations and similes that help convey both the profundity of this experience but also the simplicity of this experience. And one such classical exposition is found in what is known as the questions of King Melinda. This is a text that comes from a time when the Greek ruled northern India. This uh, followed the invasion of Alexander the Great. And this King Melinda that this um, text refer to actually means uh, or, or refers to the king Menander, a Greek king who actually <coughs> ruled in northwest India about 150 years before our area. And so this text, the questions of King Melinda, it's made up of dialogues between the spiritually interested king and the venerable Nagasena. And so I want to read you some passages which relate to Nibbana how it should be understood. So the king asked Venerable Nagasena, Venerable Nagasena, you are continually talking about Nibbana. Now, is it possible to point out the size, shape or duration of Nibbana by a simile? 
O great king, Nibbana is unlike anything else. It's impossible. And the king, but venerable, if Nibbana really exists, it should be possible to point out the size, shape or duration of Nibbana. Tell me why it is impossible. And Venerable Nagasena asks, Tell me, great king, is there such a thing as the great ocean? Oh yes, Venerable Sir, there is such a thing as the great ocean. And Venerable Nagasena, if somebody were to ask you, great king, how much water is there in the great ocean? And how many creatures live in the great ocean? How would you answer him? And the king said, If I were asked such a question, I would say to this man, This is not the question to be asked. The question must be put aside. The hair splitters have never gone into the subject of the great ocean. It is impossible to measure the water in the great ocean or to count the creatures living there. And Venerable Nagasena, But, great king, if the great ocean really exists, why should you give him such a reply? Surely you ought to measure and count, and then tell him, there is so much water in the great ocean, there are so many creatures living in the great ocean. And the king, this is impossible, Venerable Sir. This question is not a fair one. Then the king wanted to know whether Nibbana had some qualities that could be described. And Venerable Nagasena used these similes. As a lotus is unwetted by water, Nibbana is unsullied by the defilements. Like water, it cools the fever of defilements and quenches the thirst of craving. Like medicine, it protects beings who are poisoned by the defilements, cures the disease of suffering and nourishes like nectar. Then the king, really wanting to know, he wanted to know where Nibbana was found or stored. And Venerable Nagasena replied that Nibbana could not be located as a place anywhere in this universe and that it was not stored up in any place. He then used the simile of the fire saying that the fire is not stored up anywhere, but it can be produced by rubbing two sticks together. The king, he was quite smart, and so finally he asked, tell me, is there any place on which a person might stand and realize Nibbana? And Venerable Nagasena then said, Yes, there is. 
Virtue is the place to stand on. Wherever the person might be, whether in the lands of the Bactrians, whether in China or Tibet, whether in Kashmir or Gandhara, whether on a mountaintop or in the highest heavens, the one who is virtuous and practices rightly realizes Nibbana. The king was delighted with the answer and so he was satisfied with Venerable Magasena's uh, replies. And so this brings us to the fourth noble truth, the path leading to the cessation of suffering. So how can the cessation of suffering, the third noble truth, be experienced? And as Venerable Nagasena has said, by being virtuous and practicing rightly. So this path leading to the cessation of suffering is nothing other than the Noble Eightfold Path. So practicing rightly and being virtuous refers to this path. So it's a path that has eight factors and these eight factors they can be reduced to three groups. One group is the sila group, the group of virtue. Three factors belong to this group. Right action, right speech, and right livelihood. Then Another group is the Samadhi group, the concentration group. It has also three factors, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And then a third group is the Panya group, the wisdom group. And this group has two factors right view and right thought. So the classical enumeration of this noble Eightfold Path usually begins with the wisdom group, with the two factors of right view and right, under, right thought. So especially the first factor, right view, or also called right understanding, this is both the starting point and the culmination. So right view, right understanding. We start with the right view, but then the culmination is the deep understanding. And so therefore, this right view 
is divided into three levels. So the first level is referred to as the basic path. And this includes an understanding of karma, or the law of cause and effect. And this one can be an understanding based on faith, based on theoretical knowledge, confidence in what the teachers say might be right. So that's the start-off point. Then the second level is referred to as the preliminary path. And this is the understanding of the true nature of things through practice, through the practice of Vipassana meditation. And the stages of insight knowledge um, belong to this preliminary path. So it's discovering all these different uh, things that we discover through this practice. Specific characteristics, general characteristics, and so on. And then the third level, this is referred to as the real path. And this refers to understanding the Four Noble Truths at the moment of path knowledge. It refers to uh, really directly experiencing Nibbana together with the other Noble Truths. So that happens at the different stages of enlightenment. So we start with the basic path, the understanding or the right view of that, and then the culmination is the real uh, path, the view, the right view, the right understanding of these Four Noble Truths through personal direct experience. The second factor of this Eightfold Path is Right Thought. And Right Thought is defined as threefold. Thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of loving-kindness, metta, and thoughts of compassion, karuna. So renunciation. Renunciation does not exclusively mean to renounce the world and become an ascetic or a nun or a monk. This can be a form of renunciation, but there are also other ways to practice renunciation. More generally, renunciation means to renounce indulgence in the sense pleasures, 
or to renounce, to indulge in the mental defilements. And this can be done by practicing meritorious deeds, such as practicing generosity or uh, keeping one's sila, virtue pure, or not indulging in sense desires, sense pleasures, not indulging in the mental defilements, can also be done, for example, through the practice of metta meditation, or can be any kind of samatha meditation that leads to strong concentration or the jhanas. Right thought as thoughts of loving-kindness, metta. We are all very familiar with this, having practiced it for a whole week and still practicing every day. So you know, loving-kindness, benevolence, friendliness, unconditional love. So with that, with metta, we can actually renounce thoughts of anger, ill will, hatred, enmity. Or we can substitute thoughts of ill will, anger, with thoughts of loving kindness. And then thoughts of karuna, compassion. This means to renounce thoughts of cruelty or engaging in acts of cruelty, of doing harm. So this is the general explanation of what right thought means. It is said that in the practice of vipassana meditation, right thought is uh, explained a bit different. So in the context of practicing vipassana meditation, right thought refers to the mental factor which directs the mind to the object to be observed. And so this mental factor that directs the mind towards something, an object, in Pali that's called vitaka, or initial application. So this is also um, right thought. So, right view and right thought, these two factors, they belong to the wisdom group, Panya. Then, the next three factors in the Noble Eightfold Path, they belong to the Sila group, the group of virtue. So, we have right speech. And right speech is said to be the abstention from wrong speech. And wrong speech includes lying, backbiting, harsh speech, 
and frivolous talk. So the abstention from lying, in other words, it means to tell the truth. That's right speech. Or to abstain from backbiting. Backbiting as talking behind the back of others. And it's done to create dissension uh, between friends. So to abstain from backbiting means open communication, speech that leads to harmony. Then to abstain from harsh speech means to use friendly and kind speech, which is meta-imbued speech. And abstention from frivolous talk. Frivolous talk is explained as speech that does not lead to the development of virtue, concentration or wisdom. So right speech as speech that leads to the development or cultivation of virtue, concentration and wisdom. Then the next fac factor is right action. And again, right action is defined as the abstention from three kinds of bodily actions. And these are the abstention from killing living beings or inflicting harm and injuries on living beings. The abstention of taking what is not freely given, so not to steal uh, the property belonging to others, and the abstention from sexual misconduct. So, in other words, right action includes actions of giving, of protecting all forms of life, of nursing and uh, of nursing the sick and infirm, or of defending exploitation, also of natural resources includes also respecting the relationship of others. And the next factor is right livelihood. Again, it's the abstention from wrong livelihood. And right livelihood is based on right action and right speech. So right livelihood involves to abstain from all kinds of livelihood which involve killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, telling lies, backfighting, using harsh speech or frivolous uh, talk. <coughs> And in this regard, the Buddha mentioned 
five kinds of occupations that would amount to a wrong livelihood. And they are trading in liquors or trading in alcohol, <coughs> also drugs, dealing, trading with poison, then trading, dealing with weapons, further trading, dealing with human beings, such as selling them as slaves or child trafficking and some forms of prostitution. And the last occupation the Buddha mentioned, which is not the right livelihood, is to deal and sell meat. So these three factors, right action, right speech, and right livelihood, they belong to the virtue group. And the fact that they are included in the Noble Eightfold Path shows the importance to align all aspects of our life with the practice. In other words, it means the way we live our life and what we do, and especially our day-to-day -day life. So how we live our life and what we do in our life, this is a crucial factor in the whole process of purifying our heart and mind. Because complete liberation is not possible without leading a virtuous life. Complete liberation cannot only be worked out on the cushion. So therefore we should understand that our day-to-day -day life is actually also full-time practice because it's exactly with our actions, physical actions, and with our speech that we practice these three factors of the whole path. In the setting of an intensive meditation retreat, we have very little opportunity to fully engage in day-to-day -day actions and speech. So these are the three factors belonging, belonging to the virtue group. And now the last three factors, they belong to the samadhi group, concentration group. The first of these factors is right effort. And right effort is defined as the four great efforts. I just mentioned them in a minute, but right effort also includes 
perseverance, it includes patience, it also includes courage and not giving up. So these four great efforts, or the four supreme efforts, what are they? So, if unwholesome mental states have arisen, one should abandon them. So the effort to abandon unwholesome mental states. Then it's to prevent the arising of unwholesome mental states. So to create a climate in the mind where these unwholesome mental states cannot arise, to prevent them from arising. For example, by dwelling in metta, dwelling in a wholesome mental state. Then next is wholesome states which have arisen to further strengthen them. So, like if mindfulness is present, to put in some effort so that we can further strengthen the mindfulness which is already there. Or if there is some one-pointedness, concentration, then uh, the effort to deepen the concentration or at least to maintain it. And lastly, it's the effort to arouse wholesome states which are not yet there. So for example, in the practice of metta meditation, you know, with that kind of practice, we try to arouse and then strengthen this wholesome mental state. And the next factor in the Noble Eightfold Path is right mindfulness. And in the traditional explanation, it simply said right mindfulness refers to the four foundations of mindfulness. But to be a bit broader and more general, Mindfulness becomes right mindfulness when it is used to see things as they really are. That is, when mindfulness is in the service of developing understanding and wisdom. So in general, we can say mindfulness is right or right mindfulness, when it is in the service of establishing or maintaining wholesome mental states or actions. So 
you know, mindfulness, um, being right mindfulness in when we practice generosity, or to uphold our sila, virtue, or expressed as compassion, or as patience, or kindness, truthfulness, or sympathetic joy. And then the last factor of this group is right concentration. And in the suttas, right concentration is defined as the four jhanas, the four absorptions. But as Venerable Mahasi Sayadaw has said, what is called vipassana, momentary concentration, also needs to be included in right concentration. So in regard to right concentration, the point is the mind needs to be one-pointedly focused or concentrated to see things as they really are. And a one-pointed mind, a concentrated mind, is a mind free from the hindrances. And Venerable Mahasi Sayadaw has explained that when the momentary concentration we establish in Vipassana meditation, when this is really strong and continuous, then it has the ability to keep the hindrances out, to keep them at bay, as uh, the jhana can do. And so in this way, this kind of momentary concentration we develop in the Vipassana meditation should also be considered to be right concentration. And we can experience this in our practice here, can't we? At times, our concentration is so strong that the mind is really free from the hindrances. And that's the point of right concentration, to have a clear, focused mind that can really penetrate into the true nature of things. So these are these eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path and as you know right view is usually at the top of this list. It's the first factor of this path. And as I've said, with the three levels of the basic path, preparatory or preliminary path, and the real path. And so right view is at the beginning of this Eightfold Path because it gives us direction. 
which direction? The direction of Nibbana. Or we can understand it, it slants towards Nibbana. Right view or right understanding leads eventually to the experience of Nibbana, to the cessation of suffering. So right view or right understanding can be understood like a river that slants towards the ocean. As we know, the water of all the rivers eventually flows into an ocean. All rivers have this slant towards the ocean. The Buddha used a discourse called the parable of the log to show that the practice of the Noble Eightfold Path eventually and necessarily leads to liberation. And this talk, the parable of the log, also shows how practical and down-to-earth the Buddha was. He could take anything simple and ordinary to highlight a topic of his teaching. And in this case, it was a log that was floating down the river Ganges. The Buddha and a group of monks were walking from somewhere to somewhere else, and so they took some rest near the river Ganges. They were sitting in the shade of a large tree and taking rest. And then the Buddha saw this log floating down in the river Ganges. And immediately he had an idea of how he could use this uh, as a teaching. And basically the Buddha said that this log is carried into the ocean if nothing holds it back or if the log does not get stranded somewhere on the way. And so when the Buddha said this log will be eventually carried to the ocean, um, he meant the ocean of Nibbana, the ocean of liberation. And likewise, so the Buddha said, a monk or a practitioner will reach the ocean, the ocean of Nibbana, if they are not caught up on the way or if they do not get stranded somewhere. And then he went on to point out some of the ways of how one can get caught up or how one can get stranded on the way to liberation. So in this way, right view, a right understanding 
is like a river that slants towards the ocean. The water carries the log into the ocean. Or the current of the Noble Eightfold Path River carries a practitioner to the ocean of Nibbana, the ocean of complete liberation. To end this talk, I will read a praise of the Buddha from a wanderer called Vachakota. This wanderer, Vachakota, repeatedly approached the Buddha and asked him questions about the Dhamma. And little by little, he started to grasp the purpose and ultimate goal of the Buddha's teaching. And so one day, the wanderer Vachagotta then said, Just as the river Ganges inclines towards the sea and flows towards the sea, so too the disciples of the Buddha incline towards Nibbana and flow towards Nibbana. Let's sit quietly for some moments. Thank you for your attentive listening and indeed may we all flow towards Nibbana. <laughs>